Well, if you have your Bibles, why don't you do me a favor and turn to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 3, we're going to be camping out in verses 7 and 8 tonight. And while you're turning there, I'd actually love to introduce myself to you. My name is Johnny Contini, and I serve as the campus pastor here at Crossbridge Brickell. Um, tonight's also a special night for me because this is my first opportunity to preach here at Crossbridge. Um, our lead pastor, he is out of town with his wife and kids to St. Simon's Island, where he is officiating a wedding for a friend of his. And while he is away, I thought that this would be a great opportunity for me to usurp his authority and take over the church. So congratulations, I am your new lead pastor. And Carter, just because I know you're watching online, uh, hear me when I say this, I'm the captain now. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Hey, we, uh, we are in episode two of our new sermon series called Tables. And if you weren't with us last week, we kicked off this sermon series with the Bridge Movement. And the Bridge Movement is a collection of churches, or I should say a family of churches here in Miami, as well as in Brazil. And we have all decided to unite together to preach through the same exact texts as one another, as we all collectively move move towards Easter together. Now, in this series, we are going to be looking at the three primary tables of the Passover that are laid out to us in the Bible. Tonight, as well as next week, we're going to look at the table laid out to us in the book of Exodus. In the weeks to come, we're going to be looking at the table that Jesus set for his disciples on the evening when he was betrayed. And then towards the end of the series, we're going to look at the table that Jesus invites all of us into, which is the Christian Passover. But we recognize that today as Easter. Last week, we kicked off the series recognizing this idea of tables, actual physical tables playing a prominent role in our lives. They have a place of you know, cultural and societal significance. We said that different tables communicate different things and that uh, memories are typically made around some kind of table. I'm sure you can even think back in your own life, some of the fonder memories you have with friends and family members gathered together to share a meal, birthday parties that were just an absolute blast, business deals that were just done right, or maybe it was a school test where you worked hard and you studied hard and you were tested and you received that A and you got into the school of your dreams. You see, these tables are tables that are inviting, they're inclusive, and they're inspiring. But we also said that tables are not just reserved for the high moments of our life, that there are other tables in this world that are tables of exploitation and exclusivity. Maybe you received a bad medical report at a table. Maybe the divorce was finalized at the table. And I'm sure everyone in this room can think back to that time in middle school when the bell rang for lunch and we all had to ask ourselves the question, which table am I going to sit at for lunch today, knowing full well that there were certain tables we weren't invited to? You see, I think it's important that we as a church create a place or a table where everyone feels involved, included, and inspired to belong to 
Regardless of your background, regardless of your worldview, we believe that you can belong here even if you don't believe what we believe. Because these tables that are exploitive and exclusive, these are broken tables in this world. And as the church, we should be on the front lines of this fight knowing that these broken tables are bringing real pain and suffering to people. Now, I know that's a morbid thought to dwell on. And the more that we dwell on it, the more we long to find answers. But one of the things I find most reassuring about the Bible is that as we open the Word of God and read its pages, we can see common themes that people experienced back then that we experience today. Now, their circumstances might look different than ours, but the themes, the emotions, the pain points, they're all very similar. If you would, look with me in Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 through 8. It says, Then the Lord God said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come to deliver them out of the land of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as I mentioned earlier, their circumstances might look different than ours. I mean, this passage is dealing with a group of people who have been enslaved by the Egyptian nations. But I don't know if you caught it or not. But affliction, crying, suffering, These are all common themes that we experience today, and we as the church should be on the front lines pushing back the brokenness with the gospel message and doing our part in building bridges between communities. But if we're honest tonight, and I hope we are because we're in church, it's hard. It's hard for us to want to wade into that tension. It's hard for us to want to do the work necessary in building bridges because we are, by nature, creatures of comfort. It's true. We love comfort. In fact, we find comfort in being comfortable. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that comfort is a bad thing in of itself. I, for one, love the feeling of warmth and coziness that comfort brings. Heck, I even love comfort food. Mac and cheese mashed potatoes, chicken pot pie. I mean, all the foods that make you want to take a nap after you eat them. So comfort isn't bad in of itself. However, our love for comfort can be dangerous. And if we're not careful, we can grow so accustomed to comfort that we we stop Uh, being the bridge. We actually create a passivity within ourselves to the broken things of this world. And I promise you, the more passive we become, the fewer bridges we will build. And the dangerous thing about our love for comfort is that it's insidious. Little by little, our love for comfort grows and we'll find more security in our pleasures rather than, than relying on the God who loves us and who has called us to not live in a world of comfort. So the question then becomes, how are we to fight against this idea of being comfortable? 
Well, one of the best ways we can combat our love for comfort is by practicing biblical fasting. Biblical fasting. What's biblical fasting? Hey, I'm glad you asked. Biblical fasting is voluntary affliction that reminds us of our corresponding deliverance. I'm going to say that again. Biblical fasting is voluntary affliction that reminds us of our corresponding deliverance. I remember the first time I ever attempted a fast. It was back in June of 2018. I remember this date vividly because it was a big deal for me at the time as well as the church that I belonged to. You see, my church decided to kick off the summer season with a church-wide corporate fast, meaning that anyone who called themselves a member of our church committed themselves to abstaining from our particular pleasure for seven days. And any time they wanted to partake in that pleasure, they would be invited to pray instead. I remember the church offering different types of fasts for you to partake in, depending on how hardcore you wanted your fast to be. Uh, For example, you could do like a liquid fast where you would only consume liquids for a seven-day period. You could do a partial fast where you gave up uh, certain foods. Or you could do like a social media, you know, TV fast where you would choose to abstain from certain technologies and media consumption for a seven-day period. Now, like I said, this fast, it was a big deal for me. And it was a big deal for uh, one of three reasons. The first being that I had never done a fast before. So I was actually excited to try something new for the first time. The second being that my church was at the time looking for a new lead pastor. And we as the congregation wanted to come alongside the pastoral search team in prayer and fasting, asking for God's wisdom and guidance in that situation. And thirdly, and probably the most important reason for me, was that I had just been hired by my church to be on staff, and I thought it would be appropriate to do something radically spiritual as I entered into my ministry career. I'm sure you can see where this is headed. Feeling like I had something to prove, I, uh, I chose to do a seven-day water fast. Yeah. Yeah. I decided to abstain from all liquids and solids except for water for seven days. And I didn't feel God once during that time. (laughs) Oh, it was awful. I was absolutely miserable. I lost 12 pounds. And, and, you know, I was so confused because growing up, I would hear stories of people fasting, and they would say things like, man, God just clearly spoke to me in this way. Or I just felt so near to God. And I didn't experience any of that. I would just feel so hungry. And any time that I felt hungry, I would white-knuckle my way through praying, hoping that I would feel something. So the more I think about it, though, the more I think about that time in my life, the more I realize, you know, just how much I miss the point. If I can be honest, and I will because I'm in church, I felt like I had to abstain from something in order to feel closer to God. I was focused more on the act of abstaining rather than the reason of why I was abstaining in the first place. 
And if you really want me to be honest with you tonight, what I really wanted was for people to recognize that what I was doing was really hard. And by recognizing what I was doing, that they would think that I was virtuous or admirable in some way. In reality, my heart posture was me trying to elevate myself by denying the things that I felt were pleasurable. But in the end, it was just sadistic dieting. <laughs> Friends, don't, don't be like me. Don't. This should not be our posture when we fast. When we fast, our goal should be to identify with Christ in his sufferings. And by identifying in those sufferings, it should point us to where our true happiness lies, which is the finished work of Christ on the cross and his bodily resurrection. The Apostle Paul writes about this in the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, I would encourage you with what the Apostle Paul is saying. And what he is saying is first and foremost that Jesus is God. It's very important that we recognize that tonight, that Jesus is God. And before he was God in the flesh, he was God in heaven. And heaven, newsflash, is full of more eternal pleasure than we could possibly dream of. But just like the text says, Jesus didn't count his equality with God as something to be grasped. He didn't cling to his favorable circumstance. Instead, he willingly emptied himself of all eternal pleasure and humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant. Why? Well, the short answer is he was called to do a great work. And while suffering and death would be part of that great work, he remained obedient so that you and I would know where our true comfort and where our true pleasure ultimately lies. Friends, this is who Jesus is. And this is what Jesus has done. And the Apostle Paul is encouraging you and me to have this mind among ourselves. And that mind is the mind of Christ. So how are we to do that? How are we to have this mind? How are we to identify with Christ? How, how are we to share in his sufferings as one day we will share in his glory as the Apostle Paul will write in Romans chapter 8, verse 17? Well, one of the primary ways we can do that is by practicing biblical fasting. Friends, when we practice physical biblical fasting, our hearts and our minds should find joy in the fact that we are making the conscious choice of being more like Christ. Because biblical fasting is a voluntary affliction that reminds us of our corresponding deliverance. You remember the promise that God gave to his people 
back in our passage in Exodus. That because he sees the Hebrews' affliction, because he hears their cries, and because he knows their suffering, that he promises to deliver them out of that land and bring them to a good land, a land that is broad, that flows with milk and honey. You see, the irony of fasting is that when we approach it rightly, God takes us from a place of difficulty and delivers us to a place that is good, a place that is broad, a place that flows with sweetness like milk and honey. And maybe that good is a fresh perspective on the broken tables in your life. Maybe it's a renewed faith in a God who loves you very, very much. Or maybe it's a fresh experience with a Christ who sees, who hears, and who knows your suffering. Whatever it is, I promise you that his promise is to deliver. And so I would encourage you to join us in a fast during this Lenten season. We are in day 11 of 40, so there's still time for you to join. Not everyone has to fast in the same way, and you can go at your own pace. But here's my challenge, and here's my encouragement to you. To identify a particular pleasure in your life and willingly abstain from it. And anytime you feel that pull, and I promise you that pull will be coming, to know that that pool is a beautiful invitation for you to identify with Christ in his suffering. And if ever it feels overwhelming or too hard, I would encourage you to take heart, knowing that just as you share in his sufferings, that one day you too will share in his glory. Amen. Amen. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, God, you are so good to us. God, I, I see so many people in this room, and I know that you know each and every one of their stories, each and every one of us having different hurts, different pains, and different, different uh, desires. God, I just ask that you would turn your face towards your people here tonight. Lord, would you give them the, the assurance to know that you care, that you listen, and that you see, even when we feel like no one else sees. Holy Spirit, would you give us the strength to be more like you? Would you empower us to walk confidently in the fact that you died on the cross for our sins, but death was not the end for you? Lord, let us look forward to the hope of heaven that one day we will be with you again, knowing that you will be our God and we will be your people. God, we love you tonight. We thank you for this service. It's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Amen. Uh, my name is Phil Nicholas. I'm an elder here at Crossbridge. Uh, I'm an attorney by trade and um, a carter. Uh, I just want you to know that Captain Johnny is gonna need a lawyer and, uh, and I plan to have his back in this little rebellion of ours. Just saying. 
the, shake up the ground of all my tradition, break down the walls of all my religion, your way is better. Uh, first time I've ever heard that song, and it struck me that I grew up in a tradition where prayer was rote. I think we only prayed right before dinner, uh, otherwise at church, and it was the same prayer. Uh, and when I became a real believer when I was 30, uh, I was amazed at the prayers that we, and by the way, be seated, please. Please be seated. I just realized it. All right. So I was, I was amazed at how we prayed. Uh, I remember being in my first group prayer, and uh, I think, Debbie, you were there. Uh, with me. There was a number of us. We were on our way to Jamaica, but we were, the plane got late, so we went home and, uh, to someone's house to pray. So we prayed. It was my first group prayer. Everybody prayed. We prayed for like an hour. And I, I just, I felt like, I don't know, I, I, I was elevated to some cloud somewhere. I just, I just turned to my new pastor, and I looked at him, and I went, that was amazing. <laughs> and he just looked at me, startled. You know, I'd never experienced anything like that in my life. So we're going to talk about uh, prayer today, but before we dive in, I want to take notice of a couple of things about the way that I believe God has created us, the way he's constructed us. He has wired us for communication, and I have a little trouble here. Nope. Can you hear me? Okay, sorry. He's wired us for communication. We know how to receive communication, process it, spit it back out. He's wired us for questions. We all have the same questions. I don't care if you're from uh, the Amazon jungle or South, South Florida. We all have the same questions. How do we get here? What happens to me when I die? If there is a God, what is he like? What does he expect of me? Where do I find significance? Where do I find love? We all have these same questions. And we're all wired for relationship. In fact, I think if you had to place your number one value on your value chart, relationship would probably be number one, or really darn close. We seem to be wired this way. And if God has made us this way, then we should expect that he communicated to us, answered our deepest questions, and wants to somehow have a relationship with us. And what do you know? We have communications that answer our deepest questions. They're in Scripture. I'm not going to talk about that tonight and how natural it is that we would have something like the Bible if indeed God wired us for communication, communicated to us, and answered our deepest questions. We would expect some writing to be out there that answers those questions, and we have that. But I'm going to focus on relationship. Notice that God has also wired us for prayer. Prayer is a human event. We all pray one way or another. Even, and you've heard it, there are no atheists in foxholes. While the bullets are flying, even the atheist is praying. It's instinctual, for we were wired with it. If we did not have prayer, we would still learn about God from his word, we would read the Bible. But what kind of, what kind of sort of one-sided relationship would that be? If you just read about somebody uh, but could never speak with them, is that the best relationship to have? 
I would say no, and the Bible teaches us that God desires relationship, and so we should not be surprised that he calls us to pray. We are wired for prayer, every single one of us, and we pray for many reasons. Behind me, you might see the slide. We have days of prayer. We have the National Day of Prayer. We have in, in Miami, we have the Orange Bowl Prayer Breakfast. Oh, okay. Is that better? Okay, good. Thank you. Um, we, in, in 9-11, the churches were packed with people praying. A more recent example, Damar Hamlin, I don't know if you guys, if you watch football and you watch this game, this football player got severely injured on the field and, and went into some sort of cardiac arrest. And they had to revive him on the field. And if you look at the people that were around him, they're all on their knees praying. You see one man uh, sitting by himself, that's a sportscaster on a sports station. While this was happening, he, on national TV, broke out in prayer. Why? Because we are wired for prayer. Indeed, we're told in the book of Ecclesiastes that God has placed eternity in the hearts of men. When the temporary things of life begin to crash down around us, when we feel that pressure, we reach out to the eternal one. We instinctively know that there is something eternal, something beyond us. We reach out to God in prayer, and he hears us. Prayer is the access chamber. It is the great transport beam. It is the ultimate information superhighway. Prayer is where the mortal meets the immortal. It's where the temporal meets the eternal. It's where the creature meets his or her maker. When you feel unlovable in prayer, you meet the great lover of your soul. When you feel great shame, you find the one who embraces you, accepts you, forgives you, who took your shame away through Christ. When you are joyless and dry in prayer, you discover flowing streams of joy. And those of you who are prayer warriors, you know this to be true. You are constructed for prayer. Great spiritual warriors know this. This might be an urban legend, but I've heard it from more than one person, that when Martin Luther, the founder of, of the uh, Protestant Reformation, he would pray for up to three hours a day. I mean, can you imagine praying three hours a day? And it's said that on really busy days, he would pray for five hours. Jesus, the model of prayer that he showed us, would get up early in the mornings and go out to lonely places and spend time with God to commune with him. So how, how is your prayer life? That question's not a guilt trip. Because prayer is a diagnostic tool, and that question is a diagnostic tool. The quality of your prayer life tells you a lot about your condition. If you have a lacking prayer life, then there are three things at least that we can diagnose. Number one, prayer is the opportunity for you to know God more fully. If we do not pray, then we do not have a complete knowledge of God. There's, some, there's, something, there's something lacking because in some way we're not experiencing him. 
Second, prayer is the opportunity for you to know yourself better. Because if we do not pray, then the knowledge we have of ourselves is lacking because we're not seeing ourselves in the light of him. And third, prayer is the opportunity for you to know your mission, your purpose more fully. If we do not pray, then the deep knowledge of our mission, the purposes that God may have for our life, is lacking because we're not spending time with the one who charts our paths. So let's just look at each of these a little. First, if if you're not praying, your knowledge of God is lacking because we're not experiencing him. You might read a lot about God, but that's like knowing a person who sends you a lot of emails and tells you a lot about them. That's a one-way relationship where I'm just really kind of learning about that person. But if you never really spend any time with that person, can you say that you really know them at a level that is magnificent, wondrous, fulfilling, engaging? And if you're not praying, then you are not experiencing the beauty of answered prayer. For those of you that are prayers, praying people, I guarantee you, you have experienced answered prayer. And it is wonderful. And you know something more about our God. Second, if you have a lacking prayer life, not only is our knowledge of God lacking, then we don't know who we really are. Oh, we know, we know lots of things about ourselves. But if we're not experiencing the God of the universe, the creator, the holy, holy, holy one, the one who loves us and knows us best, then in some ways we're not seeing ourselves for how we really are. We're somewhat caught up in the world. We are somewhat caught up in the temporary. We lose sight of the eternal. And since eternity is where we're going to be, if we are not engaging with the internal God through the communication mechanism that he has constructed within us, prayer, then we lose sight of ourselves in some way. Engaging with the Lord in prayer otherwise makes sense. The Lord knows you like no other person. You have searched me, O Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Imagine a human being that would know you like that. Would even know your thoughts. That could be scary, but, but imagine. And how would it be if you hung out with that person that could know you so well? Look, when you hang out with good friends, you share stories, your trials, you give each other advice, maybe you pray with each other, you really get to learn a lot about yourself. I've experienced that over and over with friends in my lifetime, and I treasure them. Have you ever been to a really good counselor? What? When I say a really good counselor, you like going to this counselor. And you know why you like going to that counselor? Because that counselor learns a lot about you that most people don't know about. And that counselor engages with you, doesn't judge you, gives you advice based upon his or her knowledge of you. 
And we enjoy spending time with them as we learn about ourselves. Well, the Lord is both our great counselor and our friend. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor. He knows everything about you, even your thoughts. Thus, when we spend time with God, we learn about ourselves in abundant ways. He is called our great friend. Yes, he is the one who is the only God, the righteous one, holy, 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 alpha and the omega, almighty, the builder of everything, the great I am. But if you believe in him and place your trust in him, then he calls you friend. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. And Moses, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Now, you might think, well, that was Abraham and Moses. I mean, come on, these are pillars of the Old Testament. Uh, I'm not sure that would apply to me, but it does apply to you. I no longer, Jesus said, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. The only one that makes known their superior's business is someone who calls you a friend and considers you a friend. Jesus calls us friends, and we know this because he tells us our, his Father's business. But you are more than just friends with God. If you are a believer in Christ, if you accept what he has done for you at the cross, if you accept that he has paid for your sin, removed your shame forever, and proved it by rising from the dead, then you are sons and daughters of God. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And you have been given his spirit who tells you that you are his child and that he is your father. The spirit you received, we're told in Romans by Paul, brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. I remember before I became a believer, I would just refer to God as God, or maybe, I don't know, maybe Lord. I never really referred to him as Father, and I didn't notice that phenomenon until I spent some time praying as a, a new believer, and it kind of struck me one day that, wow, I, I call God Father, huh? And then one day I was reading Romans years later, and I came across this passage, by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. For me, that was an apologetic. This phenomenon that's taking place in me where I call God Father is his spirit residing in me that's testifying to me that he is my father and I am his son. Not only is our Lord our friend, our counselor, and God our Father, but the Lord is our great shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me, he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. If our prayer life is lacking, then we do not have visibility, full visibility, of our great friend, our great counselor, our great shepherd, 
and thus ourselves. Thirdly, prayer gives clarity on our mission and purpose. If our prayer life is lacking, then we lack visibility on our ultimate missions and purposes in life. It's like looking into the future with foggy glasses. Prayer helps to clear up our foggy glasses and see our missions and purposes more clearly. Remember when even Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before he was arrested, he had this to say, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Even our Lord, through prayer, he had clarity about his mission. Not his will, not his desires, but through prayer, his Father's will and his Father's desires. Prayer helps us see our mission more clearly. It aligns us with the mission and the purposes that God has for each one of us. So in light of all of this, he calls us friend. We're his sons and daughters. He is our great counselor. He is our great shepherd. We are constructed for prayer. We are called into relationship with God. In light of all this, he calls us to pray. So what should we do? And everybody said, pray. And how should we approach prayer? You ever have difficulty praying? Uh, the Lord gave us the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer. Um, I'm not going to go into all of that right now. But let's talk about a, a, few, a few things. First, our disposition. First, in confidence. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence in light of everything we just said about him. But you may be thinking with confidence, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a total mess. I am, I am a total wreck. My sin is too great. Have you ever felt your sin is too great? That the approaching God is one thing. Approaching him with confidence? That's another thing. But he assures us a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Some of the most beautiful moments I've ever had with my children have been when they have approached me with a broken and contrite heart, apologizing for something that they've done. As a father, I got to tell you, that's a rare and wonderful thing. And those of you that are fathers or mothers that have uh, teenagers uh, and, and younger kids, you know exactly what I mean. And in that broken and contrite spirit, the Lord tells us this. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. He knows we struggle with comprehending his love. So he wants to talk to us about that. He wants to reason with us. He understands our fear and our sin burden. Don't you remember what my son did for you? You are forgiven. Some of you may be avoiding prayer because you are just afraid of making the same old mistakes over and over. Uh, my brother Mike, uh, when I became a believer, I spent about a year talking to him, and he was engaged in, I'll just call it, wild and reckless living involving a lot of alcohol. And after talking with him for about a year, I, I sensed, I kind of put my finger on this, what I saw was an obstacle for him. And I said, Mike, let me ask you a question. Are you afraid of making a commitment because you're going to fail? Silence. And he said, yes, 
I said, oh, you'll fail. You're going to fail. But let me ask you this, Mike. If you could have the power to stop doing X, Y, and Z, if that power could be given to you, would you want that power? And he went, yes. Okay. And if you could have the power to stop doing this other thing, you don't have it, but if it could be given to you, would you want that power? And he went, yes. And I said, that's all that God's looking for. He's looking for a willing heart. So if you have a struggle with sin and you lack what you believe, the power to overcome it, but you would love to have that power, then you go to God with your willing heart. And you ask him for wisdom and for that power. You might say, yes, but I, I often pray and he doesn't seem to answer me. Well, there might be some reasons for this. First, you do not have because you don't ask. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Wrong motives. You just want to make your life more pleasurable. It's like a child coming up to their father or mother and asking for more toys. You may say, well, that's not my problem. I pray for things that I believe are in God's will for me, but I get no answer. Another obstacle to our prayer is cherished sin. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. I have a friend. He was engaged in a... A very sinful pattern. And we used to talk about it. That's what friends do. We talk about our, our issues, iron sharpening iron. He's a believer. And he called me one day and he said, I figured it out. For six days, I'm not going to engage in that sin and I'm just going to do it on Saturdays. He was serious. And I said to him, well, and you're good with that, huh? He went, oh, 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 I think so. He, qu- he quickly uh, broke his Saturday habit. If you have a cherishing sin problem, then acknowledge it before the Lord. Acknowledge it. Seek help in that area from him. Don't be hiding from him because of it. Even if you're not willing to cast your sin aside, you can... Pray for that willing spirit. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. You may think, well, Lord, I I think I'm not cherishing sin. And if I am, please weed it out. And I believe I'm praying for this with the right motives. And I do have a willing spirit, but I just, just do not feel like my prayer is being answered. Well, three things I want to note here. Sometimes prayer is answered in God's timing, not yours. Also, he might be saying no. He knows what's best for you. And our Father truly does know what is best, and ultimately what is best for us is his will and his kingdom. Thus we pray in the Our Father, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We need to trust him. Sometimes we pray, and we really don't know what we're asking. Uh, Our granddaughter... 
Justin's laughing at me. He says, every time I get up here, I cry about something. <laughs> All right, you got me here. I swore when I got to this, I was going to bite my inner lip and, and not, not cry. So our granddaughter, she comes up to me. Her, her dad died when she was only two months old, tragically. So she never, she never knew her dad. And uh, as a consequence of that, me and, and the other... And the other grandfather, we call ourselves Grandpa One and Grandpa Two, and we switch those those titles every once in a while. We uh, we make it a point of helping to address that father wound. And one day, Harper and we were at our house and playing games and stuff, and she comes up to me and she goes, "Grandpa, I have a secret." And I said, "Oh, okay. What is it?" She goes, "Gigi can't hear." And Gigi's my wife, Gina, over here. I go, "Okay, what is it?" And she goes, Grandpa, will you marry my mommy? She didn't know how to ask. She worded it the best she could. And much to our daughter's happiness, I did not marry her. <laughs> but, but, uh, when, she went, when Harper wants to play a game, whereas before I really liked my comfort, I'll play the game. And I'm committed to being her dad. And so we're going to end with this. And some, we're wired for prayer. In order to foster our relationship with God, this relationship is not a one-way street. Through prayer, we come to know God. We know ourselves better. We know our mission and the purposes for which we were created. We can approach him in confidence. Because look at what he has done for us by the cross. In the scripture, we are told that if he gave us his only son, will he not give us all things? The Lord is our wonderful friend. He is our wonderful counselor. He is our good shepherd. He is our father. We are his sons and daughters, and he loves us as such. And most of all, he is God. He is the great I am. He is the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things. He is in charge of all things. As children, we are his family. We are brothers and sisters. There is power in praying for one another, praying together as his church. What father would not be pleased with that? Thus, we can approach him individually and together with confidence and expectation. And thus, we end. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen? So let's pray. Father, 
your sons and daughters, come before you and thank you for what you have done in our lives through the cross of Christ. You are God, and you have given us your Spirit who dwells in our hearts, testifying that we are your children, and you call us to pray, not as a religious ritual or a tradition, but so that we will learn more about you, more about ourselves, more about our missions, our purposes. Help us, Father, to have a fuller understanding of all these things through prayer. We thank you. In Christ's name, amen.